from Brown Cow Studios in Gallatin Gateway, Montana. This is News Nerds. I'm Ezra Graham. Today, a conversation about religion, parenting, acting, and comedy with David Cross. Cross is best known for partnering with Bob Odenkirk in the 1990s to create Mr. Show and acting in shows and movies such as Arrested Development, where he played Tobias Funke, and Alvin and the Chipmunks, where he played the villainous Ian Hawke. Now, that might be true, but he's also thought a lot about his place in religion from an early age when he began to feel doubt about Judaism. He also has a daughter and is currently on the Worst Daddy in the World tour. And just a note, my Wi-Fi wasn't too good, so apologies for any delays or sound issues during the interview. It's Wednesday, June 21st, and this is News Nerds. Comedian and actor David Cross is joining us now. He's best known for Mr. Show, which he hosted from 1995 to 1998 with Bob Odenkirk, Arrested Development, and the first three Alvin and the Chipmunks movies. We'll be talking about those um, three roles today. He also periodically goes on stand-up tour. Right now, he's on the Worst Daddy in the World tour. Thanks so much for being with us. Yeah, absolutely. My pleasure. So how's how's tour going for you right now? Uh, it's great. Um, about to starting to wind down this part of it. I started in early March. And because I have a kid now who is in school, normally I just go out for, you know, three, four months at a time. Uh, but now I go out for about three, four or five days and I come home for three days. And I've been doing that since early March, but I'm going to take the summer off and then I'm back in I go back out in September, and I'll be in Montana. I'll be in uh, Missoula oh, yeah, you're at the Bozeman, Elm. I believe. Yeah, yeah, I think you're uh, at the Elm here. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, come on. Um, so, I'm taking the summer off, but I'll be back out starting in September, and I'll go through the end of October, early November, and that'll be that. I'd, I kind of like to um, start with how people got into their, their trade. Um, so, you graduated high school, and then you moved to New York. Um it sounds like after after that you, you no actually that's not actually true. I, I I graduated and then the day after I graduated, I grew up in Atlanta and I graduated yeah. in a high school in Atlanta. I went to New York for the summer and okay. then I went back to Atlanta for a year where I was doing stand up or you know trying starting and then I moved to Boston when I was nineteen. So I wasn't I wasn't really in New York uh, very long. Okay. And then, so you you um went to college went you went to Emerson College in Boston for a semester and then dropped out. I'd like to kind of talk about the, yeah the difference between the audience in Atlanta and then the the audience in Boston for your stand up comedy, and especially starting out how that difference might have affected how you thought about that profession. Sure, uh, good question. Well, they were wildly different, as different as you. you you could imagine. And and you, the thing to keep in mind is it was 1982. 1982 is when I first started doing stand-up. And I was uh, 17, just it was right before my 18th birthday. Stand-up was starting to go through this boom. And it was just starting to spread outside of the bigger cities. You know, there wasn't much of a scene. But uh there were a couple comedy clubs in Atlanta and and I just sort of one became my home base, basically. And me and my my peers, my friends who are also 
open micers and, you know, trying to get work and stuff. And, um, and the audience was very, uh, I mean, kind of a mix of redneck and suburban Christian folks. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, uh, uh, you know, now there's a more sophisticated audience, but back in 1982, there really wasn't. And then I moved to, Boston and that was much more amenable to what's now called alternative comedy which doesn't really mean anything but you know more personal stories more bringing your notes up on stage more extemporaneous kind of talking and a really creative inventive scene that was happening that I was lucky enough my timing was pretty impeccable to land in that scene at that time. And I made a lot of good friends and I'm still very close with people who are very successful and influential. And, uh, and it was, uh, you know, as, as different as you could ever imagine. So did you have to change your material or did your material that you had already had just work better in Boston? The material I had, whether I had stayed in Atlanta or not was going to change just because I was changing. And it, you know, took me several years to kind of find my voice and hone my skills. So whatever I was doing in that first year and change would have changed anyway. It would have, it would have evolved as I evolved, regardless of whether I was in Boston or not. For what I do and what I'm good at, Boston was a perfect place to develop. So I didn't really, there weren't too many if any, bits that I did in the, the first 15 months of doing stand-up to when I was doing stand-up, let's say three years later, I probably had lost all of that initial stuff, I would imagine. One of the things that you talk about um, a lot in your, your comedy is religion. Uh, you, I think you've said that you're, you're an atheist. You were born into a Jewish family, but you tell the story in one of the interviews that I heard you tell a story where you're kind of young. I think you said around 10 and you just realize that it just doesn't really make any sense to you. Were you, were you open with your family about your skepticism and what did they think about that? Yeah. Um, uh, Ezra, these are good questions. These are uh, much better than the standard, you know, cut and paste questions that you get. Uh, I do remember pretty vividly being in temple and synagogue and um and i kind of already was exhibiting like boredom with it and and okay. not uh not a and, a and we were we weren't like strictly religious we were religious and we went to synagogue on the on the high holy days but we weren't like we were reformed jews so it's really the 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 least strict and you know i did all the the kind of standard obvious stuff but um it wasn't like i was anything pat i i made a i made a deal with my mom that i would go to at least after i got bar mitzvah get confirmed and then that that'd be it i wouldn't have to go anymore i do remember though being at a service and just uh just the hypocrisy you know of saying all these things i actually have a bit um in my current set that is people saying one thing and then acting another way immediately and it was all about status and and i just it it was kind of gross and i didn't i also i never believed for a minute these insane stories that were clearly made up you know ten thousand years ago to explain 
things that were not explainable to ignorant, fearful people. And obviously, there's still an element of that today. Um, but we have science now. And, uh, and, this, and science wasn't really um, that, that advanced, you know, thousands of years ago when the Old Testament was written. And it just, you know, it was just like, well, this is clearly made up. It's not a bad story. It's a good story. I get that there's morals attached to it and life lessons, but you can't actually believe any of this happened, do you? You know, and with Judaism, it's like, how dare you deny your people and your heritage? You know, tens of millions of people have died for this. You know, it's not the same good, then you're going to burn in hell for all eternity and you're going to make Jesus cry. Don't make Jesus cry, you know, but there is guilt. You know, that's where the term self-loathing Jew comes from Jews who are angry at other Jewish people who deny their Judaism, uh, amongst other things. And um, I just was never uh, susceptible to that, I guess. When you were uh, in your youth and you were thinking about religion, did you ever think back to the origins of religion and kind of imagine uh, how religion started? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Part of what's you know, informed my opinion is the the history of religion and, and various religions and how they all borrowed from each other. And they're borrowed from, you know, old pagan rites and uh, traditions and it, old ancient Egyptian, a lot of stuff in the Middle East. The idea of Christmas is, a, is a, you know, and celebrating the birth of Jesus on December 25th. That was that came later. I know I've seen, I've read some things where a few people figured out that due to the alignment of the stars that they talk about, Jesus would have been born in April. And there's a, a great, great book. It's called Misquoting Jesus. And it's by a guy named, I'm going to say Bart Berman. Would you please look it up? And, yes, I am right <laughs> um, now. Misquoting. Uh, Misquoting Jesus, and he was okay. a theologian and grew up in the in the church, and then went to seminary and went to school, and uh, and he was assigned with uh, translating some older Greek texts, and then he realized that people had gotten thing like substantial things wrong, and then that kind of led him down a trail. Well, if this is wrong, then what about this? And uh, spent years and years and years studying it. He's written a number of books, and uh, but that one, it's it's all uh, there's nothing to dispute, and that informed a lot. Well, I was I was I shouldn't say informed a lot because I was way, uh, you know, I thought it was it, it it validated a lot of the the questions I had and the positions I had taken when I was younger. It's by Bart Ehrman. Um, so when did you read yep. this? Oh, I don't know, like 20 years ago, maybe 15, 20 years ago. Okay. Uh, probably, yeah, long, it was a while ago. He's written a number of books, but that one was the the first one of his I've read that was, you know, the things that you just sort of were dismissing, but you didn't have any real proof because I, I wasn't going to do the work. Somebody else did the work and now I can point to it. But yeah. So let's uh, let's turn to your comedic career and your career in acting. You first met, Please. yeah, let's do that. You first met Bob Odenkirk, and went on to co-host Mister Show with him, 
um, from 1995 to 1998. Can you tell the story of how you first met Bob Odenkirk? And I should just mention, like, you've you've been working with him ever since. Um, yeah, well, initially, uh, we weren't, we, we didn't, we weren't really that friendly, or I should say he wasn't that friendly. <laughs> we met on the writing staff of the Ben Stiller show, uh, where he was a writer, actor, and I was a, a writer. Initially, we didn't get real, really get along. Uh, I mean, we weren't enemies or anything like that we just he was he's not a necessarily warm or social person. And I was very green. I'd just come out from Boston. I was kind of uh, not really familiar with Hollywood, L.A. or any of that stuff. And uh, but then over time, uh, you know, we had tons of mutual friends we would meet you know hang out at parties and then we just started riffing and we you just it's a thing that happens occasionally in life if you're lucky enough to have it happen one or two or three times where you meet somebody and you just click intellectually and perhaps comedically uh which we did and then we started writing some stuff together and we just uh we're we come from two very different places but our styles worked really well together how do you deal with a project that doesn't work maybe it's either canceled or you know you don't want to continue pursuing it I mean, it seems like there's a lot of different reasons for why something doesn't work but how would you deal with something like that seems like it could be hard i mean i've had plenty of those uh uh, you just move on, you know, there, you have no choice. You, there's not a whole lot you can do. And you move on to the next thing. I want to move to the Alvin and the Chipmunk movies. Uh, you were in three of them. They've made a fourth. Yes. I think you've talked kind of extensively about why you initially took that job and then kind of the conflict that took place uh while you were filming the third movie they had you in a pelican suit on a cruise yes ship. you were also trying to film something in england at that time so there seemed to be kind of like a, a lot of conflicts going on with that and you've said that you kind of just went into that that whole franchise just for the money it made good money for you well i yeah i didn't know it was going to be a multi-billion dollar perhaps trillion-dollar film. I had no idea. I don't think anybody really did. I did it because I hadn't worked in, at that point, it was six months. And when you don't know what the future holds and you don't work for hundreds of days, it can get very frustrating and and you, you know, a little uh, panic-inducing when you can't, you can't work for half a year. And uh, the opportunity came up and... Uh, and I said, yeah, I'll do it. I didn't get paid a whole lot in relative terms on the first one, but because uh, they did so well, I got a lot of bonuses that are all contractually in there. And then each subsequent film, I made money. So I didn't necessarily make money on the first one, but I, I did make plenty of money by the time the third one was done. But, you know, I, I once I said I was going to do it. I, I, you know, I'm a professional. I committed to the project and I, I'm happy with the work I did. I know kids are, and I know parents are too. You know, they're always telling me that I made it kind of somewhat enjoyable when they had to watch it for the 19th time, you know? Right. Yeah. Yeah. So playing Ian Hawk in those movies, how did you work with CGI? 
Oh, it's, I mean, there's nothing there. It's a, it's not particularly fun. <laughs> there's like tennis balls on the end of poles. You know, they kind of move them around and there's a ton of people around. I mean, it takes with, with if, it, if there was a scene with like just me and the chipmunks, it would take an entire day to shoot maybe a page and a half, two pages, because you okay. shoot the same thing over and over and over and over and over again because your eyes have to track. There was a scene in the second movie where it's I'm either pushing the chipmunks through a mail slot or pulling them or something like that. And I had to have my hands precisely like my fingertips in the right area. We had to shoot that for hours. Just that little thing where I'm either taking a chipmunk in or out or whatever. The I, I don't remember. I remember it was hours. Just that little tiny little thing. Was that your first time with CGI? Uh, Alvin and the Chipmunks? I believe so. Uh, I'm pretty sure, yeah. In this this political and social and whatever, this landscape that we have in, in the country with everything going on, I mean, Trump was arraigned for the second time. There's an election coming up. Do you see political material as just easy laughs and applause? <laughs> No, there's there's nothing easy about it. Um, no, I mean, uh, for some people, maybe it's easy. That depends on the material. But I mean, I can just tell you from the amount of walkouts I get that, uh, yeah, it's, I wouldn't say it's easy, but I'm doing different stuff than other people are doing. I'm not doing like puns or anything like that. I mean, it's uh, um, I my stand up hits pretty hard. Right. I mean, I, you like to talk about like hypocrisy and how everything is, how the systems aren't working in the country. So yeah, I guess I, I can see why people would get alienated by that. So you're on your worst daddy in the, in the world tour right now. You've, you've talked openly about your experience in your family. Your dad left when you were 10. Um, mm -hmm. Do you think that comedy has helped you understand that better? Um, comedy hasn't necessarily, but I think being a dad has, I see it now, uh, in, in a, in a way that, um, for the selfishness it was and the, and, and I, I shouldn't even say selfishness as much as, as just the, just the idea of going, yeah, this isn't for me. And then just walking away and like never, you know, really making an effort to, you know, be in anyone's life or anything like that. So it, that, that was um, something I didn't understand, but I have a, not that I would ever do this, but as an adult, I see why people do that. You know, mm -hmm. and I, it's a it's obviously the easy way, the easy thing to do. And it's very selfish and it's uh, unforgivable. But. Like I'm a I can look at it in different in a different way than I used to. So after he left, did you did you talk to him? And if so, what what were your conversations like? Yeah, I mean, uh, uh, I still, you know, had. Like, I love my dad. My dad's so cool up until I was mid-teens, really. And he moved to uh, Phoenix, Arizona 
from Atlanta, which, you know, might as well have been in the moon. And, uh, and I, you know, we had to, we, we talked, but he, I was still young and he was also lying to me and, and manipulating me, uh, which I didn't know because I was a kid. But, um, uh, uh, the last time I talked to him where I just said, all right, enough's enough was when I was 19 years old. And I was just like, all right, this guy, you know, fuck this guy with that last particular conversation. I was like, I'm never going to talk to this guy again. And he lives in New York. He lives, you know, pretty, you know, some in a relative sense, he lives near me. I could ride my bike past his place if I wanted. And I, I perhaps I have some uh, without knowing it. Um, I have a vague idea where he is. He's in like the east side in the 60s i believe or upper six somewhere uh but i i haven't seen him in uh almost 40 years and he you know he's never seen his granddaughter he does he's never bothered to reach out to any yeah uh he's he's very he's very um trumpian in the way is that a word um in the way that he is nothing is ever his fault He's never to blame. Everything that goes wrong is because of somebody else or some some. He, the, the reason he got fired repeatedly it was somebody else's fault. They could, you know, it was always. Uh, he's one of those guys who's like, it's it's always somebody else's fault. So you have a daughter now. How do you explain that to your daughter? That uh, I have a daughter now. <laughs> um, no. Um, yeah. It has not come up really. Uh, she knows in in very vague terms as uh, as vague as a six and a half year old would understand that I didn't have a good dad, but um outside of that, she doesn't really have any real concept of it, and you know she's she knows she's got grandpa Russ and Graham tam on on my wife's side, and she's got Grammy Susie uh on on my side and it just isn't a thing that has come up and you know perhaps it will and i, I imagine it will at some point and when she's much older she'll probably understand uh better about my and she can even read or listen to this interview or have an understanding of a better understanding of it but for now it's just you know her 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 life is her life you know mm -hmm. as as she sees it you must get this question kind of a lot, but does your daughter think that you're funny? <laughs> uh, yes, she thinks. Uh, well, let me amend that. She thinks I'm silly, and okay. that is different to a kid. So, um, to the point where she'll be like, "Stop being silly!" Like angry, "Stop being silly!" <laughs> and um, <laughs> we mess around and do silly voices and, and things like that. She knows that I, that's my job. She knows that, uh, as she'll tell people, my daddy tells jokes. Her, to her, jokes are knock-knock jokes and things like that. Right. But she knows that I'm like for a living. That's, that's um, what she understands at this point. Well, David Cross, thank you so much. Absolutely, man. My pleasure. And again, some really good questions there. Uh, um, I've done thousands of interviews so, so that was uh, refreshing thank you oh good okay thanks so much david cross all right cubs fans let me hear you 
That was comedian and actor David Cross. Now I was going to play the Alvin and the Chipmunks theme music, but I think you'll agree that this is better. Next time. News Nerds is produced and hosted by me. We're on the web at newsnerdspodcast.com, where you can catch up with past episodes, subscribe to our newsletter, play our past daily mini crosswords, and contact us. Find News Nerds on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. And while you're there, please leave us a review. We're also on community radio station KGVM every other week at 5.30 p.m. Mountain Time. They're at kgvm.org or 95.9 FM on your radio. Consider supporting them by going to kgvm.org support dash kgvm. Thank you and see you next week.